This is an ABC podcast. If you're a city dweller, as most of us are, a patch of green is a welcome sight. And the science is in. Plants make you feel better. By way of example, the research on green views and productivity. Workers who see nature outside their window or work in an office with an indoor garden score higher on measures of mood and attentiveness. And it's not just how you feel. Plants feed the planet and will need millions more of them to help with climate change. I'm Paul Barclay and this Big Ideas is devoted to the wonderful world of plants with scientists from the University of Melbourne. The moderator is Kirsten Paris, a professor of urban ecology from the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences. Also in that school, Professor Stefan Arndt and Dr Claire Farrell. And from the School of Biosciences, Chair of Botany, Professor Michelle Watt, who begins at the beginning, the formation of the first plants. Plants started as a beautiful symbiosis, a beautiful coming together of a host cell that took on what became a mitochondrial organelle, so another bacterium that was able to use the oxygen in the atmosphere at electron acceptor. And the third part of this beautiful symbiosis was another bacterium came along, which became a chloroplast, which has all the machinery to convert sunlight into a split water molecule that makes that electron that goes to that oxygen molecule. So we started with a cell, and this happened in water originally, that was the beginning of having our only organisms on Earth, really, that can make their own energy and convert that energy into now many, many different molecules through many biochemical pathways. And it's all those biochemical pathways in plants that give us our food, give us the wood furniture around us, new medicines, you name it now, because now with sophisticated biology, we can use plants as biofactories. And I guess the other interesting thing about the origin of plants is the first plants that came onto land, actually their first root systems were actually fungi. So this was another symbiosis that was another organism that formed the first beginnings of a network of attachment to soil for taking up water and nutrients. And of course, then of course, we had evolution of all the different sorts of species. What we still don't understand is the psychological benefits that we get from plants. And we've become very, very technologically proficient at getting plants to work for us and including into the future. But to solve this mystery of why it is that this human plant or even animal plant symbioses also involved, to me that's kind of a future discovery. Thanks, Michelle. Claire, from a Western perspective, you know, our history with plants has been about colonising and showcasing status and wealth. And I mean, one of the most amazing things of being a plant scientist, but merging it with horticulture in a place like Burnley, is you get exposed to that history of gardening and and where gardens came through time and what was important about them. And a lot of the time they're about showcasing wealth 
and conquering nature. You know, saying, I can keep the jungle away or I can keep the wilderness at bay, have everything in neat rows and, and take what I want from nature and own it. And I think that's something that we can see changing with how we respond and use plants now. You know, we can see cities are transforming where plants are coming into the built fabric and we're celebrating their wildness again, which is a really wonderful thing. And if we go back to pineapples, you know, we think about pineapples. People didn't eat pineapples in the old days. They used to just put them on a table and celebrate the wealth that they had to buy that pineapple and have it there. So, you know, we have had that very conquering, controlling um, nature of our relationship with plants. And I think one of the biggest drawbacks of that is the loss of knowledge that that process ensured. Because, you know, all of the names of plants that existed before they were conquered and renamed by someone else did mean something about how those plants were used or how they were important spiritually or culturally or, or what they might have done for the culture that they were in. And so that's something I feel that we're missing from that process. And I really welcome the change now to bring First Nations back into the conversations about plants and how we use them for that reason. Stefan, looking a little bit forward now, how do you think we can use what we know of plants to help us manage a changing climate? And to what extent can plants save us from climate change? And to what extent are we uh, perhaps putting a little bit too much on their shoulders? I think you answered it in your second <laughs> half sentence there. Um, it's too much on their shoulders, uh, in my view. As we all know, plants take up carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and they fix it in their biomass. And that's a key process, but this key process has been there ever since plants conquered land. So they exchange you know, these gases, take up CO2 and give up oxygen in there. And so for many businesses and all of us, I think this seems an easy option. You know, we have more CO2 in the atmosphere. So if we need to take it out of the atmosphere, what's easier than putting more plants into, into the landscape so that they can sequester it? And we call this you know, carbon offsets, for example. And many businesses really focus on this, of saying, well, what's easy? We don't need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. We just need to have more offsets. And I think there is a lot of evidence right now that this is a dangerous thing to do because there is just not enough plants that we can plant on the planet to take up all of these gases out of the atmosphere. So if we think about the amount of emissions that we're putting out into the atmosphere, that's about... 40 billion tons of CO2 every year. And 36 of them come from fossil fuel burning, and about four of them come from deforestation. But only about 30% of these are taken up by plants. About 20% or 25% end up in the ocean, and the rest goes into the atmosphere. So it shows us that we are increasing the CO2 emissions into the atmosphere ever more because we're burning more fossil fuels. So if you have this, we're burning more fossil fuels and the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere increases, what's the answer? Plant more plants? No, it wouldn't be the answer because there's just not enough space for it. And you know, our university has recently done some research on this one as part of a big project of Net Zero Australia. So we're looking into what do we have to do in Australia to really, as a nation, have net zero emissions and across all sectors, transport, energy, and agriculture was part of it. And an answer was to get agriculture net zero, so having our meat and livestock production, our agricultural production, we would have to plant 
5 million hectares of new plantings to sequester about 60 million tons of CO2 per year. Let me put this into perspective. So Australia's greenhouse gas emissions are 500 million tons. We will get 60 million tons if we plant 5 million hectares of new forestry plantings. For the last 20 years, Australia only had 2 million hectares of plantations, and this area has actually decreased rather than increased. So it's a huge undertaking to plant 5 million hectares of new forestry plantings in Australia, if two is all we had right now. And it only offsets not even all of the emissions that we have from agriculture. So this little sort of brain teaser shows you how difficult it is just to use plants as offsets to deal with the emissions that we're putting out. So the answer really is no. We have to all grab our own noses here and saying, well, what can we do to really reduce the emissions in terms of conserving more energy or becoming more renewable in our everyday actions? And this is not only us as human beings in our own households, but it's all our businesses, of course. And, you know, don't rely on the plants. They're not the answer here. Thanks, Stefan. And I would sort of add an extra layer to that. Even if we could plant 5 million hectares a year of those trees, with changing climates, we have increased risk of fire and flood. And we don't have a guarantee that they would actually make it to maturity and do the job that we're asking them to. I think it comes to the fact that we also think, okay, well, we sequester this carbon and it's in a tree. And that's true, it's there. The wood that we stand on here, that's been sequestered. But a tree in the forest, if you think about it, it lives, it grows, it takes up CO2, it puts this CO2 into carbon in the wood, and it's stored there. But this tree is there not indefinitely. And what happens to the tree when it falls over, when the bushfire comes along, or a flood, or a pest and disease, a drought, kills the tree? Well, the tree will fall over, it lies on the forest floor. And then what happens? Then Michelle's critters come along, you know, the little fungi that start eating this tree up and they'll turn it back from carbon into CO2 into the atmosphere. So it's a cycle that we have in all plants is that they're good at taking up CO2, but once they decompose, we return this sequestered CO2 back into the atmosphere and we are back to where we started. So it's not an indefinite sequestration that we're having and this is why we have these you know, safeguards in the climate mitigation speakers that we're saying, well, we actually want permanence in uh, the sequestration. And with the forest, well, sorry, you don't get permanence because you get the CO2 sequestered for the time that the forest is there. But you really have to think about what do we do with the CO2? What happens with the CO2 if the forest is no longer there? And of course, with climate change, we're getting more risks to our ecosystems in terms of increased floods, increased bushfires, increased droughts, and you know different pests and diseases that might come along and impact these plants. And so there is a real danger for the health of our ecosystems going forward. I guess I wouldn't be so quick to say, let's not rely on the plants. The important thing is that we don't say it's the only answer, right? A couple of things maybe to poke your suggestion. I do think we've got this soil storage and there is carbon that is actually sequestered in soil potentially for a very long time. I mean, fossil fuels is actually plant carbon sequestered in soil. Mm -hmm. So it's not all about the, the respiration coming from litter on the surface that you're describing. So we, 
we have ways of thinking about plant design or plant system design to put more, more carbon into that soil pool, which takes longer to get out into, into CO2 in the air. We can use plants to maybe buy time. And from a biotechnology point of view, we do have ways of thinking about designing our plants genetically to shift more to this carbon storage function of plants. So plants in existing systems, rather than saying plant more land to more plants, we can take our landscape already to crops or trees and think about, well, what could we do to accelerate, essentially, with breeding or with biotechnology, some traits into those plants to buy us some time. Soil carbon is a good suggestion because it's also something that particularly in Australia and only in Australia always comes up as a solution to climate change. It's saying that we need to store more carbon in the soil. And globally, it's correct. Most of the carbon in the terrestrial biosphere is actually underground in the soil, about two thirds of it, and only one third is in, in plant biomass and above ground. Uh, so it's true, it's a huge carbon store, but it's also one that's not permanent because you have the same issues that you have with above ground plants is that soil carbon storage for any given soil has a maximum of carbon that you can store in there. And it sort of changes until you get a new equilibrium of the inputs and the outputs. And the inputs into soil carbon come from plants. It's the only way how you sequester CO2 into the soil is by a plant that fixes it by its leaves through the chloroplast, makes plant biomass, dies, and becomes soil carbon at the end. And then you have all the bugs in the soil that eat up this plant biomass, and part of it will remain in the soil, but eventually it will be respired again. And so you have the inputs and the outputs will match each other. If you have more inputs, you get more soil carbon storage. If you have more outputs or less inputs, then soil carbon storage changes again. So it's never a permanent store, and it depends on, again, your climate, your plants that you put onto the ground, and your environmental conditions, whether you have more rainfall or, or less rainfall, or more stress or less stress, uh, whether you can actually get soil carbon in there. It's very difficult to measure. It's not easy. You can't just measure it from space. And the changes <laughs> are very, very small. So it appears a good solution, but in reality, it probably really isn't, Michelle. <laughs> I think what we probably really have to say is that the current models around soil carbon and plant inputs to soil carbon are not actually accounting for anything below 30 centimeters depth. So there is a massive, well, there's essentially a 50% carbon gap in the sort of statements that you're making, Stefan? Sure. Well, perhaps we'll move on uh, to <laughs> thinking a little bit into the future again and maybe even a little futuristically to consider what we know now and what we might do with plants in space. Next decade, they're planning to have humans on Mars. And by the end of this decade, there's going to be a base on the moon and there's going to be launches to Mars. So this has probably brought plants really back into focus because as I was mentioning, are we talking about plants are the only living or non-living machines or organisms or systems that can take sunlight, convert it into energy and turn that into 
a multitude of biochemicals that are used from food to pharmaceuticals. And that means when it comes to colonizing space or going to Mars, we need to grow plants in space. And the distance that and time it takes to reach Mars is too long for the actual spacecrafts to carry enough food even for three people to arrive on Mars. Five universities in Australia, we've got together and we're putting together an initiative to design the next plant systems for inhabiting space. And I guess the exciting thing about the initiative is the traits that we need for plants in space are exactly the sort of traits that we need for plants on Earth. They need to be highly water use efficient. They need to be able to use nutrients from organic waste directly. They need to have a very high harvest index, so we need to be able to use all parts of the plant for all kinds of different functions that we've been talking about here. And finally, it turns out that the psychological benefits that come from plants for astronauts, which have been documented in space trips, is one of the key features of actually needing plants rather than, say, dry food packaging or pills or supplements. And even if we wanted to say people, oh, why don't we grow vats of yeast or bacteria or something like that for inhabiting space, we would need to feed those organisms plant material. So the idea of inhabiting space has brought us back to just thinking about this fundamental capability of plants to essentially meet all of, of human needs. You're listening to How Plants Made Our World and Can Save It with Professor Michelle Watt, Professor Stefan Arndt and Dr Claire Farrell, all from the University of Melbourne. Michelle Watt is the Chair of Botany. Stefan Arndt specialises in how plants respond and adapt to environmental change and Dr Claire Farrell is a Green Infrastructure Specialist. While growing plants in space takes horticulture, literally, to a whole new level, Claire says choosing plants for cities involves the same kind of thought process. Whilst that is really way out there compared to the work we do, I think coming back to that trait framework and trying to find ways of understanding how plants work from their characteristics, so not needing to know all the intricacies of how they do everything, but coming back to generalisations we can make about, you know, their leaf area or what they're doing to select plants for use here as well, which is exciting. Because you work on urban systems and the way that we have to grow plants for us living in cities is very much how we will need to grow plants for spaceships and space habitation. So I think also the technologies around the automation and the robotics and the engineering around these ultra-efficient plant systems, those technologies cross over as well. I think it's just bringing those different disciplines together. So, you know, the engineers and the designers and the architects working with people who understand plants. And I think the more of these kind of projects happen, the more you share common knowledge about systems. And I mean, with green walls, indoor green walls, you can argue about the sustainability of them, but they do bring people closer <laughs> to plants in their lives who might not have a yard or even a balcony. You know, there's apartment buildings where the lobby might be their biggest green feature, which is sad, but true. 
And, you know, you think about the evolution in lighting for those, because they use the, the older systems use bucket loads of energy for those light globes so that the plants can, can grow. And that has jumped so far, you know, in recent years, so that they're cooler and they don't use as much energy. What about all the things plants do for us right here in the city? Yeah, you can actually reverse that question and go, what are our cities like without plants? And they're pretty terrible. They're hot. We have flooding. We have stormwater runoff degrading streams. We have a lack of biodiversity of all sorts. And we'd be pretty miserable, I think, by not having greenery to look at. So if you then go from that premise and go, well, how do we make it work and how do we get more of it in cities? Then it's about thinking about how we design buildings, how we arrange them in the landscape, you know, together. So it's, you know, building scale, precinct scale, and then city scale to create cities that will have all of those features, absorb the stormwater runoff, increase biodiversity, cool our cities, um, and maybe help us cope with the changing climate that we have. We know how to do it, but we're not doing it. If you look at these new subdivisions in the growth corridors of Melbourne, for example, the northern, western and southeastern growth corridors, you have a look at an aerial photo and it's just a mass of enormous houses with black roofs squashed to the boundaries of the lot, no space for private gardens, very little space for street trees, and then there'll be a little bit of a neighbourhood park. But there's no way that that can offset the increase in the local temperature, even leading, leaving aside the, the problems with the stormwater runoff and where all that water goes and all the pollutants it brings. And then those arrive where the frogs are. And I had to bring frogs in. Yeah. <laughs> so we know how to do things much better, but we're not doing it. A question from the audience on one of the topics that we've covered so far. How do we get greener areas in these suburban areas that are just so depressing and somewhat frightening when you look at how much concrete is replacing soil and greenery? Where does the change come from? I think we need to have policy change and we need stricter regulations on what happens on private land, regulation of the ratio of how much of your block of land can be covered with impermeable surface, whether that's your house or your garage or your concrete driveway, because all those things together are just not leaving enough space for living systems, for permeable soil, for transpiring vegetation, as I said. And at the moment, there just don't seem to be those planning controls. Stefan. Yes, I recently attended a conference in Adelaide and there was a council that had some ideas around this and so they had aerial imagery where they assessed the amount of canopy cover per private properties. And so they've set targets for each of these properties to say, okay, well, that's the amount of canopy cover that you should have. And if you had less canopy cover, your rates would go up and they would go up by a fair amount. So this then, on the other hand, would be an incentive for people to increase canopy cover, of course. So you're saying, okay, well, maybe my rates can go down by $300 a year if I have additional greenery in there. And they have implemented this. So yes, I would agree with, uh, with Kirsten there that you know, it's, it's the local government, it's the council rules around 
how do you develop our suburbs and what's happening at the moment on the fringes in Melbourne is not very pretty, particularly because we have all these dark roofs there which are very energy inefficient. We're building uh, you know, mass houses which are not very energy, energy efficient and they're allowed to occupy a lot of the land area that's allocated to them with actually out, without having any dedicated rules around how much plant space or how many plants do you actually have, how many impervious surfaces can you have. And so it's critical that we change these local rules and that we introduce more plants into these areas. Michelle, did you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, just stepping back, I think it has to do with exposing more young people during their education and after their education to plants. I think we almost just take them for granted. So they're not necessarily always, sometimes you might have your, <laughs> your teacher, for example, and then you get your pineapple teacher and it's great. <laughs> but we, we need to make sure plants are just central part of, of our science and biological understanding, and both at the primary and high school and then university levels, because then people develop a love for plants. I think in, especially in the growth suburbs, you can't disentangle the communities and the expectations of owning a house. For many of these people, they come from countries where they would never own a block of land. And so for them to be able to build the house that is as big as they want and has the three bathrooms and all of that, that's their biggest dream in their whole entire life. And they might have a lot of their family come live with them as well. So while I totally agree that at a broader level there should be you know, building envelope sizes and things like this, it is really fraught to sort of build communities and say, well, what vegetation would you like to see in your neighbourhood and your community? So we just don't come and say, you have to plant this tree and you have to have a garden that looks like this because I think for most of us, we'd be horrified if someone come and told us what we would do in the leafier suburbs of Melbourne, for you know, instance. So. I think that social, ecological um, community stuff is, is complicated in that space. Thank you. I just wanted to go back to the debate that we were on earlier about plants and climate change. We looked at it from a sort of CO2 and carbon sequestration angle, but I wondered if you could all talk about how plants can help shape our hydrology and create uh, sort of their own weather systems and how the mechanisms behind that and how that could help us, say, buffer some of the effects of climate change. Well, plants do influence, of course, uh, the hydrology. We're trying to protect, for example, the catchments around Melbourne, their own forested areas, so that we're having the drinking water that we're using uh, in Melbourne. And, of course, plants. people often talk about uh, that we should, for example, plant more trees so that we can create our own weather systems effectively. Because if you have trees, usually you have your more leaf area per ground. So as such, if you have more leaf area per ground, you get more evapotranspiration from the tree back into the atmosphere, so you are moistening up the atmosphere. Uh, we call this evapotranspirative cooling, and if you have enough trees there, then you would also create more or less your own weather and your own rainfall, potentially. The problem is how you go from an unvegetated area that has only about 300 millimeters of rainfall, for the most part of Australia, to one that creates its own weather and all of a sudden generates, let's say, six or 800 millimeters of rainfall, which is the amount of precipitation that you would need to sustain a forest. And I don't think there is evidence that this has ever been done on a large scale so that you really change an ecosystem in a way because where's the initial water gonna come from 
to sustain a forest that will grow and create this amount of, of effectively evapotranspiration to create new clouds to create its own rainfall. So I'm a, I'm a bit skeptical that this is something that we can sort of geoengineer uh, our own weather. I'd just like to add an idea that perhaps in the urban environment, when we have so much excess water from uh, stormwater runoff, could we possibly try it there on a small scale, divert that stormwater to irrigate our new forest? And that's what they're doing out in the western suburbs, where Stefan's right, you know, the annual rainfall in the western suburbs doesn't sustain a forest. It's a sparsely wooded grassland. But by diverting the stormwater into tree pits on, on verges, so it's a way of getting greeny, greenery into suburbs where people might not want trees in their own yards, then you can get a big tree that's going to have a big canopy and cool those cities. And, you know, councils like Melton, they've done a fantastic job. They've actually said that every new street tree going into their suburbs has to be irrigated with stormwater runoff diverted into it, which is, is pretty amazing. We call this technique water-sensitive urban design. And what we're doing is we're taking water that would normally just run off from a street into a stormwater drain and then eventually pollute our rivers. Because let's be honest, if you've looked at the Yarra in the last few days, you'll see how much pollution this creates. And so we're using this stormwater, instead of running it into our rivers and polluting our rivers, we're using it to irrigate the street trees on our streets. Um, so this is a technology that we're working on here at Burnley together with a number of councils and we're trialing these. What are the best mechanisms of actually getting this stormwater to the trees? And it sounds much easier than it is because there are you know, engineering challenges of how you make sure that the irrigation pits are not blocked up or that, you, that they're not having to be maintained all the time, that there is an efficient infiltration and that you're not getting blockages uh, on the treescape. But it's a very exciting way, I think, of how we can redesign our cities and, and actually make them more sustainable. Plants, the roots themselves, can sense water. And so it's that balance between them being attracted to, to pipes and water and clogging, right? Problematic, too many roots, to being waterlogged, being able to, yeah. So I think from a scientific point of view, there's, there's a lot to discover. Why do we not hear a lot more about beneficial fungi on gardening shows? Fungi seems to be ignored even though it's so important to plant health and vigour. Fungi gets reasonable coverage on, on gardening shows. Maybe it does now more recently for two reasons. Yes, they perform a whole host of functions for plants and soil, mainly breaking down nutrients from organic forms into inorganic forms but also stabilizing soil, inhibiting pathogens. And because of pressures to reduce synthetic chemicals, um, there's actually a lot of activity with companies to develop fungal strains that can be applied with seeds for plants for replacing synthetic chemicals. And that's a very, very active area of, of research now and very active area for, for industry, for broadacre agriculture, and also horticulture. You can find a lot online now about opportunities for using fungi with, with roots and soil. It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because whenever we do green infrastructure 
And we, we do a lot with engineered soils. And by that, I mean, they're not just digging up some soil from the ground or using potting mix. We design a soil that has characteristics that will work for it in the different applications. So for an example, a green roof has to be very stable over time, you know, has to have a longevity of say 20 to 50 years, has to be free draining, and it has to be as light as it can be within those constraints. And so they're not made up of organic matter because they break down. And so mycorrhizal in those systems is something that it's not in our immediate mind to think about, but roofs are actually colonised. So we put them out there and the fungi get there and they do their thing with the plants. And I think a lot is the same with the other systems. You know, I think we overthink a lot of stuff <laughs> and, and stuff will just happen and sort issues out that we might think is an issue, but it gets resolved. But I think it's a bit like Michelle with roots. It's the hidden half, isn't it? And it's just that thing that when we're trying to get everything above the ground to work, we don't necessarily spend equal amount of time worrying about what's happening underneath the soil surface. My question is, given that um, plants can adapt to, to drought and in wonderful ways, can they really be expected to adapt to the such rapid growth as is being caused by human-induced climate change? So there's a difference between adaptation and adjustments. And that's sort of evolutionary timescales there. Adjustments, that's what plants can do relatively easily. You know, you can have less leaf area, you can grow more roots, uh, or you, you can grow a bigger plant. So any plant will have these kind of adjustments to changes in their climate over their lifetime. Adaptation means that you actually change the genetic makeup of a plant, and this is, of course, something that takes many, many generations for it to take effect. So you would have to have a large population. This is impacted by climate stress. Only the strongest survive, and those are the ones that are then adapted to the new climate. In long-lived plants, such as trees, this is very, very long time scales that we need to worry about. But you're right, as humans, we actually have the ability to change the composition of ecosystems. And we can make decisions around which type of plants do we want in what ecosystems. And this is easier in some uh, ecosystems than others. You know, in agriculture, we have annual cycles or sub-annual cycles, so we can put the right genotypes depending on the change in climates that we had. In forest systems, this is much more difficult because we have these long lead-in times and forest trees will live you know, really hundreds of years. And so making predictions around what is the right tree species for a future climate is really tricky because how do you know that a tree cannot adjust to a new climate? And how do you know that it will be impacted by the climate that we will have in 50 years? And what's that going to look like? So these are difficult questions that we're working on at the moment to understand the capacity, sort of the adaptive capacity of plants. And some plants are better at this than others. And so it's, it might be a bit of a non-answer to your very good question, uh, but I think it's just uh, much more difficult, particularly in the forestry sector than it is in other sectors. I think we should be worried because the finer detail of how the climate is changing, let's look at rainfall patterns, for example, is what's important. It's not drought per se, and it's not necessarily FUD per se. It's the periodicity of rainfall events. The number of days and the duration of a rainfall event is changing differently in the northern part of Australia to the southern part, for example. And 
we know so little about how plants and even animals, organisms respond to non-steady state conditions. And so this is what I think is quite concerning, is the more dynamic and unpredictable and diverse nature of the climate patterns and how quickly they're coming and how little we know about plants in you know, the reality of these dynamic conditions. For the natural ecosystems. I think for plantings in cities, I think we can cope with those changes. And I think, you know, a lot of our work has shown we have these hypotheses that the most drought tolerant plant will be the one that comes from the more arid area or that the rainforest plant will die when we plant it out in the west because it won't cope with the dry conditions and the hostile soils. And I'm constantly surprised. So I have a bit of hope, I suppose, from that, but I do think for natural ecosystems that can't expand their range quick enough to cope with the changing conditions, that that's where the biggest issue is. It's in our food. I mean, it is problematic for crops, for horticulture and broadacre crops, and it's been the source of political discontent in different parts of the world. We see that right now with the Russian situation. So it, it is very broad and it is a worry. While we focus on conserving particular species, biodiversity is just as vital for healthy ecosystems. An audience member asks why what we plant is so important for biodiversity in cities. Because plants are the, the basis of all food webs, they provide food themselves for herbivores and then they're the basis of energy for our whole ecosystem and all the organisms that exist there. And I think in an urban context, we're now starting to see how important our cities are for biodiversity conservation. And while we might be able to, for example, choose a couple of tree species to provide maximal shading or cooling, those species aren't necessarily going to provide the best biodiversity benefits. So there's some really interesting work we can do to try and maximise benefits for people, but also for other species. And from a frog perspective, we know that plants in water bodies are really important as providing key sites for calling. Many of our frogs, when they breed, they attach their egg masses to plants in the water. They're places to hide from predators as well. And as tadpoles living in an urban pond filled with introduced fish, underwater plants are really important for providing shelter for them. So from that, that really small sort of let's think about a tadpole in a pond scale to let's think about how we can promote or bring back our native biodiversity into cities by um, carefully considering our plantings, there's so much we can do. Plants are key to uh, supporting our native insects, our pollinators, um, and the birds that feed on those, and up we go. We have our preconceived ideas about biodiversity and plants. You know, so there will be people that will say, if you want to improve local diversity, then you need to be only planting plants that existed in Melbourne pre-colonisation. And that is a perspective, and I respect it but I don't know if I agree with it. And I think that that's the thing that we probably need to, to be working on a little bit more is to go, what are the attributes of plants that will support different elements of biodiversity? And how do we select plants that have those characteristics 
to broaden the range of plants that we plant so that we get those multiple benefits. Because, you know, while a grassland is beautiful and amazing, it's not going to fulfill all of our needs for tree cover and, and things like that in cities. It's one part of the picture, but it won't ever be the whole one. Yes, and I'd like to um, add to that. The structural diversity of plant communities is something that we have lost so much in our quest for neatness in the city. If you look at our parklands, so many of them are sort of based on that model of expansive grasses with occasional trees, and there's not much in between. We're, we're missing the mid-story, we're missing the small shrubs, the the spiky little plants where the small birds can hide from the big bossy birds, those little micro habitats that are so important for so many species. And uh, through this quest for neatness, and sometimes it merges into a desire for safety in public spaces and a sense that, well, if we've got a dense shrub layer, that might be great for the birds, but I can't see who's on the other side of those shrubs and maybe that's concern for me. So I think, working with designers, landscape architects, and um, a, a broader diversity of plants, I think we can start to solve some of those problems. And maybe we can just have little messy bits here and there. The whole park doesn't have to be messy, but if we can have rocks, logs, leaf litter, spiky things, dense things, floppy things like this, um, all together, at least in some areas, we're going to be just by doing that, providing for so many more plant and animal species than otherwise. My question is about uh, the oceans and aquatic plants and ecosystems and what research or potential is there for them to be involved in carbon capture as well? The ocean in itself is, a, is an important body in the carbon cycle because it takes up a large amount of carbon, about 90 million tons of CO2 has been taken up, but also released by the ocean. This is a more passive process where CO2 is gassing in and out of the ocean. There's actually not plants involved. But you would have heard about uh, you know, kelp forests, for example, and using them as, as major sequestration options and I think to some degree, uh, there's of course a truth in it because it's a plant, it lives in the water, it takes up CO2, it makes a biomass. It's, it's more a question of the longevity of a, how much of the kelp, for example, can you grow? And what happens with the kelp once it dies off? Because does it really just go down into the deep, deep ocean? And is the CO2 that's been sequestered in the kelp biomass staying there? Or does that decompose? And I think there we do have some questions around it. But the bulk of the ocean carbon uptake comes from these biophysical processes. They're not plant-based or animal-based. So I don't think there is a great deal that we, that we can manipulate. No, not forgetting that the bulk of our planet is actually ocean. About 70% of the planet is just ocean surface. And how do we manage this? How do we even get there to, to have kelp forests that we can manage? That's really, really challenging. Could you just expand a little bit on the concept of blue carbon? And is this associated with kelp forests, as you're suggesting, mm. or is that to do with algae in the oceans, mangroves in coastal systems, all yeah. of the above? So blue carbon is carbon uh, in, on the fringe between the land mass and the ocean. So this is mangroves, seagrasses, and salt marshes. And these are ecosystems which actually hold a lot of carbon stock. So it's uh, therefore been seen as a, 
as an important solution potentially for climate change because we have large amount of carbon, particularly in the soil in these ecosystems. But there are questions around this because A, if you really want to use it for mitigation, you need to have an additionality question. So you need to do something, not just business as usual. So in that sense, you would have to restore an ecosystem like a mangrove system that has been degraded. And if you look at the numbers, there's actually only about a very small proportion of the mangrove systems that would be eligible for this type of climate change mitigation restoration. And it wouldn't really make a big difference in terms of the, the carbon uptake or sequestration potential there globally. And of course, the other problem is that a large proportion of the carbon that is in a blue carbon ecosystem doesn't necessarily come from within the system. So it wasn't taken up as CO2 by the plants that live in the system, but it was transported from elsewhere as erosion carbon, for example, and then sedimented there. So it's not a new sequestration. And that's where the mitigation comes in. Yeah? So you still have carbon that's buried, but it's not new carbon that's been taken out of the atmosphere. So from a mitigation point of view, this is really difficult. Uh, and we don't really have a good handle on what is the proportion of this sort of outside the system carbon that's been in a blue carbon system. And it varies between 20 and 80 percent, Michelle. So that's bigger than your 50 that you had in the soil. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess, I guess one thing, like the mitigation strategies around plants, it's possible that they, you know, there's questions and obviously they're, they're not the solution, the only solution for, for mitigating against atmospheric carbon, but often they bring other benefits. And I think that that uh, has to be part of the message, especially, let's say, in, in agricultural broadacre systems that I'm a bit more familiar with, encouraging growers to adopt carbon sequestration practices is beneficial because carbon sequestration or inputting more carbon into soil is associated with greater nutrient turnover, better soil aggregation, less erosion, possibly even water-related uh, water use efficiency benefits. So it sounds cliche, but it, it can be a little bit win-win with plants. Quick question about uh, space-related things like closed systems. What role do things like bacteria, fungi, and perhaps insects play in these little things? It's not just plants alone, I'm guessing. It needs to be some sort of a system that yeah. interacts. We're grappling with this right now because, of course, the default position is thinking, well, they should be sterile, right? So initially minimise potential for pathogens and microorganisms because it's such a cold, closed system that they grow out of control and then you're, it's ultimately sort of the plant that needs to live. So in short, we actually don't have an answer. And in vertical farming systems, it's actually microorganism interactions that can cause the problems for the plants. So there's a lot that we need to learn about actually designing or knowing what's the minimal microbial microbiome essentially that's needed for closed systems. So that's not very satisfying. But for the insects, I think that's, that's an interesting one because we probably can't expect to have pollinators. This, I'm talking about space now. Um, and so there we are really thinking about how the plants that don't require insect pollinators for pollination. And we're also thinking about things that 
how plants actually regenerate without flowering. So we're having to go back through the entire diversity and history of plants that we have knowledge of and think, okay, we might actually need a non-flowering trait to combine with quite advanced recent trait that might be for another function that we need in that plant. We would like to be able to have what NASA calls pick and eat plants, where you pick them continuously. It's not like farming that we know about on Earth, where you pick everything at one point, because that's all designed around mechanization and harvesters. We want to have plants that continuously regenerate so that we can pick and eat them and that we don't necessarily have to plant them or rely on pollinators very often. My final question to you all, and I'll start with Claire, is what is one thing that people in the audience can do to help plants help save the world? I would say stop and smell the roses. And the reason I say that is that we all respect and value things that we know a little bit about. So if we take the time to look at the plants that are growing around our neighbourhood, to look at how they change seasonally, when they flower, whether they have little babies coming up and things like that, then we build a relationship with them and then we have a bit more of attachment and it's through that that we will improve the future, I believe. If you want to save the planet, eat plants. There's scientific evidence for this. So half of the inhabitable space on Earth is agriculture. But 80% or 77% of the agricultural space that we're having, we're using to grow animals or animal feed. So there's livestock, dairy, and the feed for the livestock and dairy or, or meat that we're eating there. But this 77% of the land mass only provides about 20% of the calories that we're eating. So we're getting 80% of the calories that we're requiring from 23% of our land mass. So if you really want to make a difference in terms of the emissions that are associated with growing the food, mainly, mainly meat, well, stop eating it. There you have it. Yeah, that's going to be tough to beat, Stefan. Um, <laughs> I guess I would say plant a plant. So I never stress when my plants die. They're just part of this cycle of our resources in life. And Animals, I think, are a little more stressful. Kids, obviously, more so. But the great thing about plants is they're so forgiving. They're so resilient, but they're so delicate and they're so beautiful. I would just plant a plant. Head to the garden, get your hands dirty. That discussion on how plants can save the world comes from the University of Melbourne. The speakers were Professor Michelle Watt, the Adrienne Clark Professorial Chair of Botany in the School of Biosciences, and from the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences, Dr Claire Farrell, Senior Lecturer in Green Infrastructure, and Stefan Arndt, Professor of Physiological and Ecosystem Ecology. The moderator was Kirsten Paris, Professor of Urban Ecology. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.